Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why are hyperlinks blue? You ever think about that before? Plus, a look at the tech behind the wheelchairs and prostheses used by Paralympians. And what the heck is Grimace, the big purple McDonald's mascot? A manager at a Canadian McDonald's dropped a bombshell on the internet today, but is he correct? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Have you ever questioned why hyperlinks are blue? I'm sure some sites might make them a different color, but the standard is that 0000FF hex code blue. Where did this come from? How did it become standard? Elise Blanchard over at Mozilla's Distilled blog dug into the mystery behind blue hyperlinks last week. Now, Mosaic, one of the early browsers in 1993, is often credited with being the first to use blue hyperlinks as we know them today, but Blanchard wanted to dig deeper. She points to the HyperTize system that launched in 1983 as the first instance of links being embedded as the text themselves. Previously, they were visual lines, link icons, or numbered menus. And these text links were cyan on a black background. But that light blue color is a bit different from the true blue of our hyperlinks today. The darker blue color first shows up, according to Blanchard's research, in Windows 1.0 in 1985. And not in hyperlinks, but in headings, borders, and other features. The links, however, were black, as they were in several interfaces in this era. Windows 1.0, however, was the first instance Blanchard found of hyperlinks being underlined. Apple's 1987 HyperCard didn't use blue or underlining for their links, but the World Wide Web adopted the lines right from the start and that same year, but was only in black and white. At the start of the new decade, color was becoming more common in monitors. Windows 3 supported 16 whole colors, yet text links remained black. Though they did build on the hover features from Windows 1, when you selected a link, they'd be highlighted in black with white text. Now, Apple also added color in 1991 to their new edition of HyperCard, but also kept their links black. Notably, though, they started using blue more and more as accents for images that the user interacted with. And then in 1992, Windows 3.1 introduced that dark blue we now know for hyperlinks as the active state when a user clicked on an icon. Quoting Blanchard, This is incredibly important because it shows the slow evolution of this blue from being a layout color to being an interactive color, preceding the time when blue would have been added to Mosaic by almost exactly a year. End quote. And Mosaic's beta version at the beginning of 1993 still used black and white hyperlinks. However, come April, their version 0.13 had this update in the change log, quote, Changed default anchor representations, blue and single solid underline for unvisited, dark purple and single dashed underline for visited, end quote. Now we have not only the blue, but also the dark purple for visited links. It wasn't all over at this point, though. While the Macintosh OS version of Mosaic included the blue hyperlinks in 1993, the common desktop environment on Unix that same year still used black hyperlinks. And the first version of Cello, a Cornell Law School project, also used black links, even though it used the hyperlink style for their headline formatting. 
But then came Netscape in 1994 and Internet Explorer in 1995, and both of them adopted the blue underlined hyperlinks. But why did that style win out? A lot of people point to the strength of Blue's contrast for visibility, but considering standards weren't really established across interfaces back when Blue started being the leader of the pack, and that Blue doesn't really have a high contrast against the black backgrounds common in the mid to late 80s, Blanchard doesn't think this is it. Black text with underlines was pretty strongly established from 1985 onwards, but as color monitors became popular in the early 90s, Mosaic specifically decided to use blue. It reminds me a little of the film adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, changing Dorothy's shoes from silver, like they are in the book, to red, just to show off the technicolor innovation. And Mosaic picking blue ended up setting the standard because they ported their browser for multiple operating systems, which made them the standard browser there for a while, which then made their choice of blue hyperlinks be seen as the default among many users. So when subsequent browsers like Netscape and Internet Explorer came about, blue was the clear choice because it's what people were used to. It was no longer a choice associated with one company, but rather just a standard. So that's how we got good ol' 0000FF for all of our links. But Blanchard asks, should it stay that way? We have so many colors to choose from nowadays, and as anyone who learned HTML from customizing their live journal knows, standard blue isn't always the best choice for every background. The priority should be accessibility, which sometimes means what people recognize as a link, and sometimes means what people can physically see across various devices and impairments. And relatedly, I've been really curious about the kinds of innovations that we might see in technology as the people who grew up with smartphones start entering the workforce. You know, the way that they conceive of the internet is just so different from the rest of us. But I also hadn't thought before about what things they might also just take for granted and not question. Hyperlinks are blue and underlined. That's just the way of the world now. Or is it? The Paralympic Games are still running until the end of the week. China is currently dominating the medal board with a 43 medal lead over the next highest country of Great Britain. Like the main Olympics, the Paralympics display not only a breadth of incredible athletic talent, but also cutting-edge technology that many viewers are seeing for the first time. Last month, we saw AI being employed for timekeeping and scoring in some events, not to mention all kinds of high-quality gear that recreational players of the sports are unlikely to have. And this month, we're getting a look at a whole array of wheelchairs, prostheses, and more designed specifically for each sport, and in many cases, for each athlete. Now, while most able-bodied people are familiar with the three-wheeled racing chairs used in track events, if you tuned into wheelchair basketball or especially wheelchair rugby for the first time this year, you may have been surprised by the unique design of the chairs. Unlike standard everyday wheelchairs, these ones have, among other features, slanted wheels that allow athletes to move faster and turn more sharply. Becca Murray, a retired wheelchair basketball player and three-time gold medalist for the U.S., explained to Scientific American that there are also additional wheels on the back of the chair to help with stability, and that athletes usually wear straps or belts to keep them secure if they fall over, which tends to happen in the heat of the game. Murray explained, quote, If you were to fall over, you want to be able to just get right back up, so you want your wheelchair to stay attached to you, almost like you're one with the wheelchair, end quote. 
Quoting further from Scientific American, wheelchairs for different sports also vary widely, although they share some similarities. Many are built from high-tech materials, such as carbon fiber, that make them both strong and lightweight. They often include rubber-coated wheel-turning grips that athletes grab with gloved hands to maximize friction, but beyond that, the designs diverge. In wheelchair fencing, for example, the wheels are locked into place while athletes strike and dodge from set positions. So fencing chairs are equipped with leg straps and sturdy handles that help the athletes stay solidly seated, and many of them have a lower-than-usual back to enable more upper-body movement, end quote. And from the International Paralympic Committee, quote, In a basketball chair, athletes sit higher than on a racing chair, thus are using a bigger push rim that can range from 60 to 68 centimeters in diameter compared to 35 to 39 centimeters. This means an athlete's stroke length is a lot shorter in wheelchair basketball and requires quicker hands and explosive power to stop and change directions. Meanwhile, everything that's gone into a racing chair is designed for straight-ahead speed, and athletes have to manage their energy efficiency depending on the distance they're racing, said U.S. wheelchair racer Josh George, end quote. Athletes also often wear gloves to help push the rims of their wheels more effectively, and in wheelchair rugby to assist with handling the ball. As far as prostheses go, it's all about aerodynamics. In track and field events especially, blade-style prostheses help reduce drag, Bryce Dyer, who develops these kinds of prostheses, told Scientific American that able-bodied people's legs are not particularly aerodynamic, but you can design prostheses to be super aerodynamic. Quote, We can make it very, very thin, almost like an aircraft wing, razor blade thickness, to slice through air and reduce or remove any turbulence from it. End quote. And like everyday prostheses, each one is customized to fit the athlete's body and individual needs. But customization is also necessary in the wheelchairs, which you'll notice when watching team sports. Things like the height of the chair back, the slope of the seat, or perhaps an extra wheel towards the back are adapted based on the athlete's body. And in some sports, the customization even varies depending on the position of the player. In wheelchair rugby, defensive players have metal grates called pickers on the bottom front of their chairs that are used to try to hook the chair of offensive players on the opposing team and prevent them from moving. Conversely, offensive players have a sort of bumper to try to deter this movement. All players in wheelchair rugby also have solid plates over the spokes of their chairs to prevent injury in the high-contact sport. With all of this customization and athletic equipment being a pretty niche market, it gets expensive. A lot of athletes have to save up for years to afford the assistive technology required to even begin training in their sport. Others are lucky enough to be sponsored or win grants. Because you can't really use athletic prostheses or wheelchairs in everyday life, so it's not like one could just replace the other. The athletic ones are designed with specific needs that differ from everyday needs. Murray points to examples of everyday wheelchairs needing to be as narrow as possible to fit through small spaces, so those slanted wheels would not be helpful. Fortunately, the advances in athletic assistive technology does sometimes trickle down to everyday use. Not much, but Dyer says there are subtle ways that designers like him can learn new techniques and more about people's needs. For example, he says how to adapt everyday prostheses for someone who might want to play sports recreationally. And who knows, maybe some of those folks will find their passion and one day join the ranks of the elite athletes competing in Tokyo right now. The games continue through this Sunday the 5th, and you can learn more about how to tune in wherever you live at Paralympic.org. Alright, so you know Grimace? 
McDonald's violently purple proto-gritty mascot who was part of Ronald's gang back in 71, but shed his evil ways and inexplicably his extra set of arms in 1972, becoming an ordinary law-abiding milkshake-loving blob. The nebulous furry character has always been something of an enigma in McDonald's branding. His existence has long puzzled people. He's like the gonzo of the McDonald's mascot lineup. What even is a grimace? According to the McDonald's fandom wiki, because of course one of those exists, he's a quote, large purple anthropomorphic being of indeterminate species, end quote. But a McDonald's manager in Canada has flipped the internet upside down with his claim about Grimace's true nature. Brian Bates was recently named Outstanding Manager of the Year, beating out thousands of managers across Canada for the honor. And in an interview with CBC about how he helped lead his restaurant through the pandemic, he also dropped this bombshell. According to him, Grimace is a taste bud. Quote, He's an enormous taste bud, but a taste bud nonetheless. End quote. A taste bud? Boing Boing did manage to pull up a micrograph of a human taste bud whose purple hue and kind of blobby shape looked a little grimace-like. Other outlets, however, are not having it. From the takeout, quote, Now, I know that Canadian McDonald's menus differ from U.S. McDonald's menus, but Bates's proclamation flies in the face of McDonald land scholarship to which I so desperately cleave. It's no wonder that Bates's interview is making the rounds on Twitter. The American people know one thing to be true. Grimace isn't a taste bud. He's a grimace. He comes from a line of grimaces. They're big purple monsters with no evolutionary prowess other than looking goofy. They don't serve a purpose, nor should they. To Bates I say, show me the proof, sir. Until then, I shall cleave to the lore. End quote. Oh yes, the lore. It may not tell us directly what Grimace is, but it does provide some insight on Grimace's kin, of which it turns out there are, canonically, quite a few. Quoting from the wiki, Grimace has an unnamed mom, an unnamed dad, a grandma named Winky, a great-grandma named Jenny Grimace, and a possible brother named King Gonga, who rules over all Grimaces. In a 1999 commercial for McDonald's, Grimace has two aunts named Millie and Tilly, whom Ronald mistakes for actual aunts while on a picnic. While many family members have been mentioned, most heavily seen and mentioned is Uncle O'Grimacy, who came one month every year around St. Patrick's Day in March to bring shamrock shakes. End quote. But Grimace lore seems to diverge between the facts as stated on the wiki and the rumors reported by people who have worked at McDonald's. Someone on the McDonald's subreddit, whose flair marks them as an assistant manager, asserted five years ago that Grimace is a taste bud. And being that that Reddit user and Brian Bates, the award-winning Canadian, both achieved management status, is this something that's included only in manager training materials? Knowledge that is only bestowed upon you when you've proven your loyalty to the Golden Arches? Like hitting a new OT level in Scientology? These managers have gone clear and been provided with the truth about Grimace. Someone else six years ago on the subreddit also said they thought Grimace was supposed to be a taste bud, and another person also six years ago on a different subreddit wrote that their father, quote, works closely with Mickey D's owners and brought me along as a youngin. I asked one of the head guys, he actually showed me a document with all of the McDonald's characters, and that was the tagline for Grimace, end quote. 
You can find responses from various users across various subreddits going back years who claim Grimace is a taste bud. Of course, there's also people saying they thought he was a McNugget and all kinds of other things, but the taste bud people seem very confident. McDonald's corporate, however, weighed in on Twitter back in 2012, saying, quote, Grimace is the embodiment of a milkshake, though others still insist he's a taste bud, end quote. So that may be the official word, if the folks running the Twitter account nine years ago can be trusted more than a handful of managers, although, like, if Grimace were the embodiment of a milkshake, why was his original MO stealing milkshakes with his extra set of milkshake-stealing arms? Was he trying to bring the shakes back to the safety of their own kind, or was he simply a cannibal? To be fair, two years later, during an AMA with archivists from McDonald's Golden Archives and Corporate Library, which, yes, used to be a real thing, an archivist replied saying, quote, Grimace Lore says he is the embodiment of a milkshake or a taste bud. What do you think? End quote. Classic archivist. No solid answer. Presenting the evidence and turning it into a question. And maybe that is the real answer. You know, Grimace isn't what's in our mouths or in our bellies, but in our hearts. As Mashable summed it up, quote, maybe it depends on what you want him to be, end quote. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.